There are a handful of things that uh, many people, many of us, people like us, don't talk about or don't want to talk about, don't like to talk about, and especially don't want to be asked about. Among those are money, what else? Religion, age, what else? Weight. This is not what I was thinking, but thank you, Pat. I was thinking politics, religion, sex, those kind of things, how well the Los Angeles Lakers are doing. Ooh. How poorly the Warriors and the Spurs are doing. Ooh. This morning, I'm not going to talk about the Lakers or the Warriors or the Spurs, but I am going to talk a little bit about money because Jesus talked a lot about money. The scriptures talk a lot about money. Jesus talked more about money than any other subject except the kingdom of God. And sometimes he talked about money when he was talking about the kingdom of God. He told stories about money. He made allusions to money. He made references to money. Jesus never had a lot of money. He never sought money. He really, we, we don't know of anything that he had, but he wasn't a money-hungry guy. But he understood the spiritual nature of money, and he understood human nature. And so wanting people to understand themselves and God, he spoke quite a bit about money. So I'm not going to ask you this morning to speak about money or to talk about it, but if you would like, when we're done, to continue the conversation or to sit in on a conversation about money, you're welcome to go to a life group, uh, even if you've never been to one. You can sit in, you can listen, you can participate. If you would like, no pressure. As usual, the foundation of what we're talking about this morning is the scriptures, the word of God. So before we begin talking, let's pray. God, there are many voices in our lives, but there's only one voice with a capital V. There are lots of little truths in our world, but there's only one truth with a capital T. You are that voice, you are that truth. You are life, you are good, you are the way. And so we ask that you would help us to be attentive to you and to you through your word this morning. Give us ears that are good to hear the things that you would have us hear and eyes that can see the things that you would have us see, that we might become the kind of people you would have us become. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate from your word in any way, shape, or form, may they immediately be forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So we're starting this morning in the book of Acts. Many of you know that the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which each give an account of the Christ, Jesus, and of the, uh, his birth and moving forward. Following the four Gospels is a book called Acts, which uh, is more formally the Acts of the Apostles and tells the story of the birth of the body of Christ, the church, and about its early actions and goings on. Uh, this morning, we're going to start in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins where the Gospel of Luke finishes up. Uh, Acts was written by the same author who wrote the, book, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He makes a number of appearances to his disciples. 
disciples then over a period of 40 days. He uh, hangs out with them and then ascends to the heavens to the right hand of God the Father. And then as he promised, he sent his spirit to be with his followers and he appeared uh, on a day on the feast of Pentecost uh, as like through these images of fire that were above his disciples' heads and images that appeared to be in the shape of tongues. And his disciples who had gathered there unexpectedly, involuntarily began to speak in these other languages that they had ever, never heard or known or studied before, speaking the words of God, the truth of God, the gospel uh, what there was to know for the people of Jerusalem about Jesus. And the result of this, or what went along with this, was that 3,000 people, as Luke records it, witnessed these things, heard the gospel, came to faith in Jesus, came to believe, and had their entire lives transformed that particular day. They were consumed by the Spirit outwardly and inwardly, and they were formed into this radically transformed community of people that came to be known as the church. Are you with me? And now we pick up the story, the second chapter of Acts, uh, verse 42, reading through verse 47. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. Luke writes, they, in other words, the 3,000 people who came to faith in and relationship with Jesus Christ that day in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number that day those who were being saved. And the Lord added to their number that day those who were being saved. Those who were coming into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and a saving faith in Jesus Christ the Lord was actively adding to multiplying them. There was growth. There was transformation. There was power. And there was life. And these six verses function very much in the book of Acts as the, uh, a compact description of what the earliest church did, what the earliest church was about, what the earliest church was like, how they lived, how they were. It's kind of a little package description, definition of the first church. And because this passage is so descriptive and as it turns out so paradigmatic, and because it's rather short, I'm going to read it again and ask you to pay very close attention to what Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Luke recorded. Listen closely again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and, uh, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate regularly with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They enjoyed favor, at least for a short time, at least at the beginning with the general population. 
They broke bread together in their homes, and this was probably code language, not only for eating meals together, but also for celebrating what we call the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, what was called in the first century sometimes the love feast of the church. These early believers met together daily in the temple courts, presumably for worship and also for teaching. They were basically all Jewish background believers at this point, so they continued to practice their Jewish faith but looking to Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And they prayed and they praised God and they were filled with gladness. They were filled with joy. And then there's this somewhat unusual verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And I've always understood this verse to mean miraculous healings, to refer to speaking in tongues, and maybe other charismatic manifestations, sort of super spiritual things. This is what the modern signs and wonders movement in the church has been about for the last several decades. However, I want to ask this morning, what if signs and wonders, wonders and signs, here could have meant or referred to something else? Could have referred to something altogether different? And if so, what might that have been? In verse 42, we read that these new believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia, which you've heard before, which refers to an association, not like a homeowner's association, but a collective a voluntary collective, to people who participate in something together, to people who are drawn into something together, to people who share a life together, to a community, to intimacy, not sexual intimacy or romantic intimacy, but an intimacy of friendship, and who share with one another openly, gladly, eagerly. And then Luke mentions these signs and wonders, wonders and signs, and then right after that, maybe as if explaining wonders and signs, he writes, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And the Greek word for common here is koina, from koinos, which is the root word from which we get the word koinonia. And so a form of this word immediately precedes and immediately follows Luke's mention of wonders and signs. Are you with me? Kind of like a sandwich. And then Luke writes, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so my question is, what if signs and wonders, wonders and signs, refers to the radical, radical generosity of this new community of people toward each other and with each other? With all of the things, the possessions, and even the property that heretofore had always been theirs and theirs alone, had always been their very own, what if wonders and signs were not some otherworldly charismatic manifestations that we may or may not be able to reproduce, but instead was the inner working of the Holy Spirit to produce in people generosity? Some of us may be threatened by, afraid of, unsure of, reticent about some of those miracles and speaking in tongues and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Some of us may be just as reticent about or threatened by this other understanding of what wonders and signs may have meant. But something happened. Something happened with these 3,000 people. 
They had encountered the grace of God in Jesus. They had become recipients of the grace of God in Jesus, which meant mercy and forgiveness and mercy and joy and peace and hope and power and love. Something had happened undeniably. The visible stuff at first was tongues of fire, these languages that they'd never been trained in or learned or grown up with. But something happened. They didn't just go through a new member class or have their names added to a church role. No, they had undergone some radically transformative, transcendent, mysterious, and yet very real event or encounter with God in Christ. And God had gotten into them. Jesus had gotten into them. He hadn't just rubbed off a little on them. He had gotten into them, their very beings, with all of his grace, which had the effect of causing them to become radically generous. To the point that when they saw a need, they met that need to the best of their ability with the resources that they had seemingly without hesitation. I think it was Charles Wesley who said, a person really becomes transformed, renewed, sanctified when and only when their wallet becomes transformed. And we wonder why the church seems powerless today at times. It might be a money-related issue. The Holy Spirit was poured out on all these people in the second chapter of Acts. One of the results was this radical generosity. Might there have been a correlation? Do you think there was a correlation? If the church in America today is lacking power and in the spirit, it may be related to the fact that the average American Christian gives only 2.5% of her income to the church and a total charitable giving of less than 3% of her income to all charities. Or such may be a sign of the absence of God's spirit. I want us to do a little exercise this morning. Go ahead and get out your wallet or your purse. Go ahead. Get it out. Get out your wallet or your purse or your checkbook. If you have a checkbook, get it out. Hold it in your hands. Grab it. Uh, a lot of us do our banking online today. So uh, if you bank online, if you've got your phone with you, go ahead and open up your banking app. I'm going to do that too. Open up your banking app. Log into your account. And now imagine what it would be like or what it would feel like to hand your checkbook or your wallet or your phone with your bank account or checking account or brokerage accounts open to a person around you. Not, not your spouse if you came with your spouse, but someone else. I'm not going to ask you to do this, so you're safe, I promise. But we're going to be safe here this morning. But imagine what that would be like and what that would feel like to do that. <laughs> and to be able to say, what's mine is yours, sister in Christ. What's mine is yours, brother in Christ. What's in our checking account or what's in our savings account or what's in our bank account or in our brokerages accounts will likely be embarrassing to many of us, most of us, maybe all of us. Maybe because of what's not in there, or maybe because of what is in there. 
What's mine is yours, brother in Christ. What's yours is mine. Imagine being a part of a church or a Christian community or a movement where that sort of thinking, not even thinking, but being, was normative. Would there be power? Would there be love? Would there be the presence of the Spirit? Absolutely. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. People sometimes ask, are we supposed to read the Bible and understand the Bible literally or figuratively? Literally or metaphorically? And the answer, of course, that it should, is that the Bible should always be read contextually, in its context, as it was intended to be read and understood when it was written, to whom it was written. And there's nothing in these verses in chapter 2 of Acts that would indicate anything other than that Luke intends his readers to understand at face value what was happening among the first community of Christians, what effect the Holy Spirit had on them about their DNA in Christ, including with regard to their radical generosity, including with regard to what they possessed, what they owned, what they had. There are some today... One particular person who's been in the news the past week who preach a prosperity gospel or a health and wealth message. But the preponderance of the scriptures, including this description of the early church in Acts, describe not the accumulation of wealth for one's own sake, but the sharing of wealth for the sake of others and in the name of Jesus. Noted Christian author Randy Alcorn uh, who has written a lot of books and many of them about money, once wrote, God doesn't make us rich so that we can indulge ourselves and spoil our children or so that we can insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. God gives us abundant material blessings so that we can give it away and give it generously, which is a very different idea than our world promotes and that we, many of us, embrace. What if our earning ability is not for ourselves but for others? Kind of consistent with what we read here in Acts 2. And Francis Frangapane has written, even if, all, even if all we have is a little, the Lord desires us to be joyfully generous so that he will have for his church an abundance for every good work. Let us not be selfish or deceived by money. Let us not be selfish or deceived by money. In a real sense, money is not so much a blessing as it is a test. Money may not be so much a blessing as it is a test or a means of measure or a means of looking inside of oneself. And when we look inside of ourselves, who of us would like to think that we ourselves are generous? I would. I would. Sure. It's natural that we would think, want to think of ourselves as generous, a virtue clearly of God from God. But how does one become generous? How does one become generous? A person learns to speak by speaking. They learn to walk by walking. They learn to run by learning. A person learns, learns to study by studying, learns to work by working. A person learns to love by loving. A person learns to give by giving. A person learns to be generous by being generous, by following the lead of a generous God, by practicing generosity, that's how it works. 
And while the notion of giving and generosity sound good to us, for many of us, there's a part of us that holds back. We're conditioned in that way, both by our culture and our nature. The story is told of a farmer who was known for his generous giving and whose friends could not understand how he could give so much and yet remain so prosperous. One day a spokesman for his friends said, we cannot understand you. You give far more than any of the rest of us and yet you always seem to have more to give. Oh, that's easy to explain, the farmer said. I keep shoveling into God's bin and God keeps shoveling back into mine and God has a bigger shovel. Jesus and the scriptures are clear that God honors generosity, that God delights in generosity, and at the same time that the Father of Jesus will always provide for our needs. That's the way God's economy works when and as we trust him. Jesus himself, you know, said, recorded in Acts 20, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Counter to the thinking of the world and our human nature, there is more blessing, there is more blessing in giving than in receiving. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about the interaction of what's going on in our hearts and in God's cosmic economy. And studies in psychology actually bear this out, which should not surprise us. All truth is God's truth. Studies show that generosity improves a person's mental health and overall well-being. When we give, when we're generous, the regions of our brain associated with pleasure and social connection and trust light up and make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. Other studies show that generosity, practicing generosity, living generously, reduce stress improve a person's physical health, enhances one's sense of purpose, helps fight depression, and even increases a person's lifespan. Uh, John Taster shared an article with me yesterday about a 98-year-old man who seemed to have a robust amount of energy, lives in San Francisco, and for the last couple of decades has been trying to find someone to take his mother's and then his uh, family home and estate in San Francisco and to build on it affordable housing for other people, for the poor. And he's finally, through the partnership of Habitat for Humanity, been able to see this come to fruition. And the bulldozers have come in and the work has begun and he fully intends to see it through to completion in a year or two. Speaking with joy. Generosity, the social scientists tell us, promotes social connections, improved relationships, helps us to feel better about ourselves, and fends off self-hatred. But this is just reality. This is just reality as observed by social scientists. The scriptures do not call us to give for the benefits that we will receive. Rather, we give because God has come to us in Jesus and entered into us with his spirit. And God is at work healing us and redeeming us and saving us and molding us as we make ourselves available more and more into the image and likeness of our creator. 
We don't practice generosity because we have to, but because we get to. The early church didn't have someone come to them and say, you're supposed to be generous because the pastor at church said so. But they practiced generosity not because they had to, but because they could, because they'd been blessed, because God had done this work in their lives and filled them with his spirit. The great 16th century church reformer Martin Luther wrote, I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all, but what I have given to God into God's hands I still possess, which is kind of a profound thought. Uh, Isabella Linde of Chile has been called the world's most widely read Spanish language, Spanish language author. And I don't know that she writes from an implicitly Christian perspective, but I heard her say recently some words that just really struck me as having a lot of truth in them. She said, you only have what you give. You only have what you give, which is so counter to our way of thinking. But in there, it seems to be to some truth. And in the words of St. Francis of Assisi on the front of our bulletins, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in giving that we receive. The church, as described by Luke here in Acts, is a community of people who experience God's grace. And in experiencing God's grace themselves and as individuals, they become God's grace for one another. And then they become God's grace for their community. And then they become the means or the vessel or the avenue or the agents of God's grace for their community. That is who God, I believe, wants us to be, wants us to become. Not because we have to, but because we get to. The church is not an institution as much as it is a foretaste of the kingdom of God that is coming. A visible manifestation of what God intends for all people. Not religion for some religious people, but his goodness for all people and in all people. May we become those people by God's grace and as we are filled with his spirit. Let's pray. Help us to be available to you, God. Free us from fear. We give ourselves to you. Amen.